Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 26th, 2013, and my guest is David Laidler of the University of Western Ontario. He has written widely on monetary economics and was the research assistant for Friedman and Schwartz's classic Monetary History of the United States. David, welcome to EconTalk. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with the Great Depression and Friedman and Schwartz's work. Uh, They had very uh, revolutionary views of what caused the Depression and the failure of the economy to recover. What did they try to teach us in in that book? Well, let's first remember that that book uh, was from 1867 to 1960. It wasn't just about the Great Depression. Uh, What they tried to teach us about the Great Depression specifically was that it was a particularly extreme example of a pattern that you could see throughout American monetary history, namely that if you allowed the rate of money growth to collapse, you were going to bring about a downturn in the economy. Uh, More specifically, as far as the Depression was concerned, they argued that the Federal Reserve System turned a fairly routine downturn that started in 1929 into an absolute catastrophe uh, by, first of all, failing to act to support the banking system in the, in the first year of the, uh, of the downturn, and then just failing to take vigorous action to get the monetary system expanding again over the next two years, uh, you know, culminating in the bank holiday of 1933 and the raising of the price of gold and all the rest of it. So in a, in a nutshell, the message was the Great Depression was not a sign that there was some deep flaw in the market economy. It was the Fed's fault. And how have those arguments uh, held up in the current in the current crisis that we're in, this sometimes called the Great Recession? Well, uh, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, if you talk to Paul Krugman or read his blog, he's been very insistent that those arguments have been blown out of the water uh, by the uh, last recession. Uh, he argues that uh, this time around, the Fed did indeed react quickly and vigorously, and, and uh, basically nothing happened. Uh, I think he's just wrong about that. Uh, one of the things Why? that didn't happen, well, one of the things that didn't happen this time is that the money supply didn't contract by about 30% uh, in the wake of the financial market crisis. Uh, the price level didn't fall the way it did in the early 1930s. The inflation rate went down to around about zero, but it stabilized. And though the first year of both crises in terms of the contraction in national income and the impact on the labor market look very alike, um, at the end of the first year, things stabilized this time around uh, rather than uh, spiraling on down for another couple of years. So I think this time around, we got pretty much what Friedman and Schwartz's analysis would have led us to expect. Now, that's not to say that the Fed couldn't have done better this time around. 
I think in hindsight, people like me might argue they could have been even more expansionary, uh, but that's another story. Uh, and of course, there's another part of the story that you had fiscal stimulus as well this time around, which you very much didn't have in the 1930s. So there's always a, an issue of sorting out just how much uh, to attribute to monetary policy, how much to attribute to fiscal policy, all those old debates that have been going on since the 1930s on and off. Just ask you one question about that. Uh, Hoover gets blamed for being a do-nothing president, but government spending did rise uh, during oh, the Hoover administration, correct? Yeah, no, Hoover got a very bad rap. I mean, he really did. People forget that Hoover, when he was Secretary of Commerce, was a big supporter of the National Bureau of Economic Research's data collection uh, and business cycle analysis programs. And Hoover's aim was actually to put in place a, a system in which the federal government and the U.S. could deploy countercyclical fiscal policy. And indeed, when the Depression first came, uh, that was what he wanted to do. The trouble was the, the collapse was so prodigiously fast uh, that uh, what was available for the feds to do uh, was, was, was just uh, by no means big enough. Um, but, you know, the, the Friedman and Schwartz argument is then relevant here. Basically, the rather puny fiscal efforts that Hoover was trying to make were just undermined by the incompetence of the Federal Reserve System. So coming back to the Krugman uh, criticism, and, and he's not alone, of course, many, many people ha have argued that because of the lower bound of zero on nominal interest rates – that the Fed is impotent, that it can't really do anything. Uh, what's your response? And you're, you're, you've argued that that they've actually been somewhat effective. They could have been more effective, but they forestalled a, a disaster. Uh, what's your view on this issue of um, the uh, so-called liquidity trap, the idea that the Fed can't really affect any uh, monetary policy as interest rates gets, get as low as they have? Okay, let's let's just get one thing uh, in the history of economic analysis straight. Um, this is not really an argument about a liquidity trap that Krugman and people are putting in the traditional Keynes sense. It's an argument about what Ralph Hawtrey in the 20s and 30s called a credit deadlock, a state of affairs in which the business sector was so depressed that it just wouldn't borrow from the banking system. And because it wouldn't borrow, credit didn't expand. And because credit didn't expand, uh, the money supply didn't expand. Now, Hawtrey and other people in the 30s were arguing, well, when that happens, the Federal Reserve System has got to be proactive. It's got to go out there and buy securities, buy long-term government debt, uh, buy anything that's, the, that's there and just stuff the banking system full of reserves until it starts lending actively on its own account. And I would argue that policies like that uh, have been available this time, that the zero lower bound is a problem for conventional everyday monetary policy that focuses on the overnight rate. But it's not an insuperable barrier uh, to monetary policy when an economy is getting into trouble. It's just something you've got to take account of and you've got to do other things. And I do wish people wouldn't call these policies unconventional because they're not. They've been in the economics literature for nearly 100 years. Uh, do you think Friedman would have been an advocate of uh, quantitative easing in that along those lines? Well, I want to be careful here because, you know, Friedman uh, is, is, is not with us. 
And the guy that imaginative, you're never quite sure what he would have said this time around. I think what we can say is that his analysis of the Great Depression and his analysis of Japanese issues, you know, in the 1990s and uh, around about the year 2000, 2001, he certainly was in favor of what we now call quantitative easing in those cases. Um, I'd like to think he would have been in favor of it this time around, but I say you have to be careful. Uh, A striking feature of the recent debate was, for example, that the late Anna Schwartz early on in in, in this recession was actually very critical of the Fed. That surprised me, uh, but she was. So you, you can't count on these things. Yeah, I want to come back to the, we're going to get to the criticisms of the Fed from from monetarists, uh, which has been, of course, very interesting. Right now we're talking about the criticisms of the Fed from the people who are more advocating fiscal stimulus. But my question is that you're suggesting that zero lower bound is not so relevant because the Fed can go out and, and buy assets and inject money directly into the banking system, that the, that the interest rate issue is not so important. But how do you reconcile that, given that you give the Fed decent marks, with the fact that so many reserves have piled up at the, in the banking system, and there seems to be so little expansion of credit? Well, uh, first of all, in the uh, since you know 2011, roughly speaking, uh, money growth has picked up in the states. Um, let me let me refer to another monetarist economist, Philip Kagan, who did a lot of the background work for the monetary history of the United States. Uh, the way he put it was this: when people looked at the U.S. after 1933, many people argued that the Fed was uh, trying was expanding the reserve base, the money supply was growing um, a little bit more, but all of this was like pushing on a limp string. It still didn't get the economy going. And and what Phil Kagan said was really not so. The right analogy is pushing on a coiled spring. And you start pushing, and first of all, the spring starts to uh, compress, and nothing much happens. But as you keep on pushing harder and harder and for longer and longer, eventually the other end of it begins to move. And I think we've been seeing that happening in the U.S. this time around. It's, it's, it's been remarkably consistent with the later 1930s, I think. Um, I wish that, uh, you know, QE3 was perhaps a little more vigorous because money isn't growing quite as fast as, as one would like to see it. It's stuck somewhere in the 5 to 10% per annum expansion range, depending on which aggregate you look at. And I think the economy could stand a bit more of that. But things are now moving in the right direction. You know, there is a recovery underway. It's not all that vigorous, but Uh, all the signs are the economy is coming around. And it's doing that in the face of some fiscal contraction as well, which I think is quite striking. Now, on this program in the past, Steve Hankey has has argued that using broader-based measures of money other than uh, M1 uh, and M2, that growth remains well below its trend, the growth of the money supply, and that despite the expansionary aspect of the Fed, it hasn't offset the contractionary aspect of the shadow banking system's collapse and the regulation of that system that's contracted the supply. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that you know I'm I, I'm not an expert on the day to day workings of uh, the U.S. monetary system right now, uh, but I think there's probably something to that, and I think it's quite consistent with my own judgment that the the conventional aggregates. Um, 
you know, AMQ is not all that narrow after all. There's quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of broad, you know, quite a lot of assets in there. Uh, that 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 could be more vigorous without putting anything very much at risk. I know Steve Hankey likes those things called Divisia aggregates. Yeah, that's what, that's uh, what he uses. Yeah. Yeah, I use Divisia M4. Now, a Divisia aggregate is one in which you weight the rate of growth of the particular component by its liquidity. Right? So if it's a very liquid asset, you give it a, uh, you give it a bigger weight. It's more money-ish. Yeah, it's more money-ish. And you measure its degree of money-ishness by the difference between the rate of return that's paid on that asset and some representative market rate of interest. Now, all those spreads have narrowed, okay? And uh, what what the Divisia aggregates are showing is that the, the, the rate of growth of, shall we say, M1, those, you know, demand deposits, transactions money, is not getting the amount of weight in those broader aggregates as it usually does uh, because the difference between the zero rate of return on that kind of uh, bank liability and overall market rates of interest has shrunk. Uh, I mean, my general take on, on monetary aggregates is that there's no reason to suppose that one aggregate is going to tell you the story all the time under every historical circumstances. Uh, you need to keep an eye on, on a range of monetary aggregates. And if they start telling you different stories depending which one you're looking at, uh, then the next step is to go try in, into the data and try to find out why. I don't think there's a mechanical rules here to apply to policy. So I, I wouldn't want to argue with – that's a long answer to a short question. I wouldn't want to argue with Steve Hanke about this. He's, he's closer to the data than I am, and as far as I can see, what he's saying is consistent with what I've been saying. And that's just a way of explaining the slowness of the recovery uh, relative to the depth of the, of the uh, shock. That's right. I mean, it, I think I've certainly been surprised at the amount of quantitative easing that the Fed has had to carry out to get the monetary system moving again. Uh, and as I say, I, you know, I'd like to see it moving even faster, but I'm not sitting in the policy chair uh, wondering how I'm going to unwind all this eventually when the economy comes around. Rare, I, I don't think that's a problem for next year. You know, I think we've got a way to go yet. It's a rare moment of honesty from even an Econ Talk guest. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to go to a question that I've asked many times to, to different guests, and uh, I appreciate my listeners' patience, but I think you actually have – a lot of insight into this question relative to some of the people I ask, and that's the following. Uh, I was trained, as you were, at the University of Chicago, and I was taught that when you think about monetary policy, you think about quantities. You think about the quantity of money. Now, you might debate or be unsure, as you just alluded to, as to which definition, which aggregate measure is the right one. But we were told to look at quantities. You want to understand the impact on the, on the, on the nominal economy. You want to look at the impact of – monetary policy on inflation, you look at money, the quantity of money. Uh, and yet over the last 10, 15, 20 years, the most there, – there, the, the chairs of the Fed plus many monetary economists always talk about interest rates. What's going on there? Why is there two different approaches and help me understand that? Well, um, what I think happened was that uh, people like me in the 70s and 80s uh, overstated the case for uh, the reliability of the rate of growth of the money supply as the anchor for monetary policy. 
Things didn't work out as well as uh, expected in a number of places. You also had, you know, Milton Friedman's really catastrophically bad call uh, at the end of the VOCA disinflation. The double-digit inflation was just around the corner again. And uh, central banks were uh, put off relying on money growth. And I think they threw the baby out with the bathwater. I think money growth targeting wasn't uh, a very effective uh, policy framework. Uh, but I don't think that was a good reason to stop looking at these variables altogether. But a lot of people did. And parallel to that, of course, you had developments in monetary theory um, in the starting in the 1980s, 1990s. The big names there, people like John Taylor and Michael Woodford, Lars Svensson, who started building models of monetary policy in which they simply cut out the financial system altogether and just concentrated on direct links between policy interest rates and uh, the level of spending in the economy. And that kind of model works just fine when the monetary system is functioning. When the monetary system is functioning, you can ignore it. And I'm afraid we had about 15 years when leading uh, uh, scholars uh, of monetary economics just cut the monetary and financial system out of their analysis. And that's been a shame. I hope that one beneficial side effect of, of the last few dreadful years is that people will start paying attention uh, to those monetary aggregates again. Um, just as a side remark, in Europe, you know, the European Central Bank had a reference value for the rate of growth of M3 as a sort of backup to its regular policymaking framework. And for reasons that are quite beyond me, this reference value has disappeared altogether in the last three or four years. Money growth has been incredibly sluggish in the EU. And look at the stagnation in that economy. I don't think that's an accident. Is there... Um is there a parallel in the U.S. economy? I, I remember after I interviewed Milton in 2006, I questioned him about one of his claims about the Great Moderation, which we, of course, were at, at the tail end of at the time. We didn't realize it. Uh, but yeah. he, when it, it was one of the thrills of my life that it, that a 90-plus-year-old uh, economist – I think Milton was 92 at that point uh, – sent me a spreadsheet. And he said, oh, you don't want to look at M1. You want to look at M2. And M two M two was pretty uh, was very very steady, as he had as he had essentially claimed. But it hasn't really has it has M two reflected this this crisis that that we're in. Um, my my recollection is that it uh, is that it did indeed um, that its uh, growth rate really went into a bit of a spin um, in two thousand after after the collapse of Lehman's bro Lehman Brothers, uh, but that. Um, in the uh, in the last little while, it's got back again. Yeah, I've just got this up on <laughs> on my uh, on my computer screen just to check. And M2 at the end of 2008 was actually growing for a little while, uh, close to 10%. It just peaked, and then it went into a spin and almost got down. Its growth rate almost got down to zero by early 2010. And then it's been coming, the growth rate's been coming back since. So what you don't find in the U.S. monetary aggregate data 
is any sign that there was going to be a major downturn starting in, in 2008. There's no big contraction in money growth before the downturn started. Uh, that's, one of the, uh, that's one of the mysteries about, uh, about this particular episode. But once it got going, you got this, uh, this spiraling downwards. And as I say, this time around, unlike the 1930s, the Fed's expansionary reaction to that uh, put a stop to the contraction before it gathered too much momentum. Yeah, well, the, obviously there's a cause and effect issue of monetary policy, especially when it's linked to a financial crisis. And as you point out – Well, that's out, right. I mean the, 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 the process is a recursive one, right? Monetary tightening causes the economy to contract and a contracting economy, if you don't watch it, starts making the money supply contract even further. Well, and that's what was going on there. And I would say especially if it originates in the financial sector and you know, yeah. there's some debate about – you allude to it in some of your recent writing about the what I would call the real side or the microeconomic side, and you you point out that the that the Austrian view the the idea that both the twenty nine collapse and the current mess uh, did see a, a very rapid run up in asset prices that suddenly collapsed and that obviously caused some challenges for the financial sector. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's right. I mean, people keep calling these things financial crises, and they're really asset market crises, and they happen on the margin between, you know, markets for financial assets and markets for real assets, like, you know, like real estate and, and, uh, and factories and uh, physical investment. Um, I don't think the monetarist story of the onset of the Great Depression, by the way, or the monetarist story of the onset of this Great Recession is, is, is quite plausible enough. Uh, I can't find anything in the data in the 1920s or the data in the run-up to, to, to this event uh, that shows a degree of sort of conventional uh, tightening of money growth that can account for the speed of the uh, of the subsequent downturn that really looks like in both cases an economy where something was going badly wrong in real asset markets and it just needed a little bit of tap from the financial markets to set a, a downward spiral going and you're right i mean the austrians were the pioneers of this kind of analysis in the 20s even and of course there are still austrians around and if I may uh, sort of put in a plug for Cambridge, England, where John Maynard Keynes was, uh, Keynes's colleague, Sir Dennis Robertson, uh, was, was developing a parallel analysis to, this, analysis to this in the 1920s. And he wrote a little textbook, and its 1928 edition has got a couple of paragraphs expressing his fears about what was likely to happen in the States if that asset market boom kept on going. And this was before the Great Depression and before the stock market crash. Um, in contrast, the sort of uh, the, the the representative of monetarism in the United States in the 1920s was probably Irving Fisher, and Irving Fisher didn't see anything coming. He was just concentrating on the behavior of the price level and saying, you know, all is well, right down to the uh, to to October 1929, and indeed afterwards. So uh, I think we've got to give the Austrians and Dennis Robertson some credit, and I'd like to see our profession start taking that analysis a little bit more seriously. I mean the mainstream of our profession, because, of course, uh, uh, the people who have been propounding it are certainly professionals themselves, but they're in a minority. Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest challenge is you, – you, you refer in one of your working papers, and we'll put a link up to this. Uh, it's a very nice paper. Uh, you refer to monetarism without money. Uh, meaning this focus on interest rates. And I, I would phrase that a little bit differently, which is, 
which you alluded to a minute ago, which is uh, macroeconomics without the financial sector seems to be not a good idea. Uh, it's but you know the limit the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market, and as economists have gotten more uh, successful and 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 uh, there's more of us, we, we somehow we've specialized a lot. It seems to me uh, macroeconomics needs to try to integrate that a little more successfully. Oh, I think that's right. I mean, let me let me give you a sort of quick take on what I think happened. Um, you know, we, we talk about a market economy and we talk about markets determining prices and allocating resources and all the rest of it. Uh, and if we go to the world we live in, what we see is that when we look and see how markets actually function, it's uh, we exchange goods and services against money or in credit transactions and money passing from hand to hand, uh, credit transactions among agents are absolutely fundamental to the way in which the markets work. Uh, fair enough, but we can't model the monetary and financial system every time we try to address an economic problem about the effectiveness, shall we say, about tax policy or the desirability of a free trade deal with some other country. So we abstract from it and we, we talk about the market functioning. Now, that kind of analysis, that's microeconomic analysis, has been enormously successful and one of the big movements in macroeconomics in the last 30 years has been to use that kind of microeconomics as a basis for macroeconomics. Well, my take on that has always been is that abstracting from the monetary and financial system is all very well for many problems, but not for the problems of the, of the macroeconomy. Uh, and you've seen a lot of people trying to put monetary and financial factors back into this kind of model of the market economy, not realizing that it's already in those models, a tacit assumption that the monetary and financial systems are functioning all very well, thank you. So they're trying to put the monetary and financial system into the same model twice uh, with different assumptions about the way it works. And, you know, it comes out as a bit of a mess. And I think that's where we've been. Before we move on, do you want to say anything about the um, decision by the Fed to pay interest on reserves and whether that – why you think they did that and if it has any significance? Ah, gee. I mean, if I remember that Milton was in favor of paying interest on reserves way back in the 1950s with his program for monetary stability. Um, what, was the argument, what was the argument I, he made for it? The, arg the argument was sort of uh, – was the – um, if you paid interest on reserves, you would give the banking system less incentive to try to evade reserve requirements, and hence you would give the Fed more control over the behavior of the monetary aggregates. That was the essence of Milton's argument. Um, the other argument for it that became very popular uh, in, the, in the 70s up here in Canada, at least, is that Forcing banks to hold non-interest bearing reserves was a, was putting a tax on banks and there was no particular reason for taxing those institutions. So pay them interest on reserves uh, and, and relieve them of that tax. Uh, the way we went in Canada was, was the opposite direction. We just phased out reserve requirements and essentially we've got a monetary control mechanism that no longer relies on the reserve base. But that's a different story and it's not, it's not a story that's, that's 100% relevant to the way things work in the States. Uh, I'm sorry, I haven't really given a straight answer well, to your no. question. Well, let me ask I, it a different I haven't way. lost any, 
I haven't lost any sleep about the Fed paying interest on reserves. I really haven't. But I do notice that it makes the banks more willing to hold the proceeds of quantitative easing without getting out into the market and making loans. And I wonder if if, if the Fed uh, noticed, paid quite as much attention to that side effect um, as, as it deserved. But that, that's a technical detail in the execution of policy and takes us back to, you know, has policy been expansionary enough? Yeah, well, let, let me – but it's a nice segue to a, a, the next topic really, which is the, the, some of the criticisms of the Fed that, that have been coming not from the fiscal side but from other – from monetarists. I'm going to read a quote from uh, a working paper of yours and talking about um, uh, criticisms of the Fed. Quote, that it has exceeded the bounds of its responsibilities as lender of last resort by rescuing insolvent investment banks and insurance companies – Rather than limiting itself to providing liquidity to solvent commercial banks, that by cooperating with the Treasury in many of these activities, it has surrendered its policymaking independence, and that the massive increase in its cash liabilities that has resulted from these policies and subsequent quantitative easings carries with it a serious inflationary threat. So I want to take uh, – when we take these one at a time – uh, okay, and when, be clear, I was trying to paraphrase people I was disagreeing I understand. with. That. Yeah, that, yeah. That this is not your view, but this is a nice, I thought it was a fabulous summary of what many people have said, accused the Fed of. You're going to defend the Fed against most, if not all, these charges. Uh, let's start with this one of, uh, you know, traditionally, where tradition goes back to, um, I suppose, uh, Badgett, uh, who said that the Fed should be the lender of last resort, but only to solvent banks. It shouldn't be propping up insolvent banks. And yet the Fed seems to have propped up everybody once uh, Lehman Brothers failed. Why? Well, first of all, Badger didn't say that, okay? All right. If you, if you comb, um, you know, Lombard Street uh, on your computer and look for the word solvent, you're only going to find it in one place. And he's talking about Britain being solvent in, the case of a, in a case of a balance of payments crisis. Uh, so Badgett really didn't say that. He said some things about you probably don't want to bail out really badly run institutions, but he thought that that was a minor problem. I think something that people have forgotten about these principles with the lender of last resort that we inherited from, from the 19th century, uh, when Badgett wrote Lombard Street, um, there was no limited liability in banking. Okay, the banks were partnerships or they were joint stock companies, but there was unlimited liability on their owners. So the notion of an insolvent bank in 1873 was a very different thing to a notion of an insolvent bank now. Okay, it's a good point. Uh, but, you know, it's a family, it it's a family solve... business. The family has to be broke before the institution is insolvent. But the the it doesn't change, and I appreciate what you wrote. Yeah, uh, you wrote that world the world changes and. Lombard Street doesn't exist anymore, so we need to be thinking about this in a different way. And I yeah. certainly accept that the logic of that. The problem is, is the way I understand Badger, whether I, whether I'm right, apologize for misrepresenting uh, him uh, about the solvency issue. But basically, the the thing that was appealing about that is that you don't want to be the lender of last resort to every bank because if you are, there's a terrible moral hazard problem that that banks will have an incentive to to misbehave. Their creditors, more importantly, will have an incentive to to, to lend imprudently, and uh, seems to me we've gone down a very dangerous road. But you are more sanguine. What's your optimism? Well, I mean, it, it is a dangerous road. But the whole, you know, uh, that's because the, you know the financial system is a dangerous place when a when a crisis is beginning. 
the first issue is, can you really tell the difference between um, a solvent institution and one that's just lacking in liquidity um, uh, when there's a run on it? Uh, Northern Rock, take an example. The first uh, example in British history for heaven knows how long, over a century, uh, of an institution that had customers lining up outside the, the doors to get their cash. Now, as far as I can tell, uh, Northern Rock was uh, had a pretty good, uh, solid portfolio of mortgages. There was nothing the matter with the mortgages it was holding. Its, its problem was that its supply of uh, lending in the commercial paper market had uh, just dried up as part of the worldwide commercial paper market collapse. And it was, it was a classic uh, issue of an institution being short of liquidity. But the Bank of England sat on its hands just for a little while, allowed this run to develop. And by the time they got everything settled with Northern Rock, you know, the financial crisis had taken its toll, the economy had turned down. And what had started out as a liquidity problem for that institution did indeed turn into a solvency problem. But you can make a cogent argument that the reason it did turn into a solvency problem was that the liquidity problem wasn't handled early enough. A similar thing, you know, argument can be made about the case of the uh, Bank of United States in 1930 in New York. With the Fed let that one go broke, and yet they paid a pretty good proportion of their debts when, they, when their bankruptcy was finally settled uh, in, I think, 1932 or 33. It's not clear that they were insolvent. They might have been illiquid. But the point is, it's difficult to tell the difference, and I would rather err on the side of making sure the financial system doesn't start to seize up. So I'm not too keen on a strict interpretation of that solvency, uh, the, the, the liquidity solvency uh, distinction. I, I, would, I would rather err on the expansionary side to keep the system moving. Well, I'll take um, your point. I, know, uh, I take okay, your point. I mean, a lot of people would disagree with me. I don't think it's the kind of thing that you can lay hard and fast rules down, down about. Um, similarly, whether you should stick only to banks. Well, there, you know, uh, the, there are two arguments about what the lender of last resort should be doing. The first is the traditional monetarist one, that the real object of the exercise is to stop the money supply contracting. So keep the institutions whose liabilities make up the money supply in business. Uh, there's another argument that says what's really important is the market for short-term interbank credit because that's what oils the wheels of commerce and keeps industry going, and you've got to make sure that those markets don't get disrupted. That's the kind of argument that's associated with Ben Bernanke's work. But if you actually go back to the 19th century literature, you'll find both of these, both of these arguments around, uh, even in the 19th century. And the second argument, the Bernanke-style argument in particular, which, by the way, was also partly badgered, uh, that's an argument that says you don't want to be too strict in drawing the line between what's an institution, the kind of institution that you're going to rescue, and what's the kind of institution you've got no business going near. Um, once again, if the collapse of a, of a merchant bank or the collapse of an insurance company is going to impinge on the ability of the commercial banks to function, uh, it's the job of the lender of last resort to make sure that doesn't happen. And again, there's a long, you know, a lot of precedence for this. Um, the the bearing crisis of 1890 in London um, evolved because Bering Brothers, who weren't a commercial bank, they were a merchant bank, uh, were marketing Argentinian bonds in London. 
And they got caught with a big inventory of Argentinian bonds that they couldn't sell. And uh, the Bank of England essentially organized um, uh, a bailout of Bering Brothers by getting their creditors to, to hold off uh, calling in their debts uh, until the episode was over. It was a little bit like the way the Fed handled the long-term yep. capital management is. the same thing. And, you know, there was an eerie similarity. And that's a lender of last resort activity, but it's not the traditional, you know, uh, lend freely to uh, only to only to solvent banks in order to stop the money supply co collapsing. So there's a lot of precedents for these things. So reminding myself... Uh, your warning or reminder earlier that uh, we're not sitting in the policy chair. We're just uh, having a nice chat on a late summer uh, afternoon. Uh, it does seem that that viewpoint, which I totally understand from a policymaker's perspective, you know, err on the side of caution. M make sure that you don't let the banking system collapse. Once we're in that world, which I would argue is the world we've lived in for the last 25 or 30 years – uh, we've created a situation where uh, the large creditors of large financial institutions know that they are part of a complicated, tangled system. Now, we could debate whether that is the result of policy mistakes or policy decisions or whether it's just some natural progression of technology and globalization. doesn't matter. That's the world we live in. In that world, the, pr the, the, the presumption is intervene. The presumption is lend. The presumption is rescue. The presumption is bailout. We're, we're in a world where that sector of the economy is effectively being highly subsidized by this inevitable decision. It seems like a very unhealthy political economy. Well, I think you say two things about it. First of all, to the extent that the monetary and financial system are uh, public goods as well as made up of a lot of uh, private sector institutions, there is a, you know, a, a sort of traditional case for the provision of public goods with subsidies that comes out of, out of welfare economics. I don't want to make too much of that. But I think one's got to distinguish, about, distinguish uh, among who actually gets bailed out in these operations. Um, if, uh, if financial institutions make dumb loans and look like collapsing, I'm 100% in favor of their shareholders losing all their equity, and I'm 100% in favor of the managers who made those mistakes being slung out on their ear. And if it turns out there's been fraud involved, uh, being prosecuted and, and put in prison, um, what I would like to do is keep the network of uh, credit markets functioning and stop the money supply uh, collapsing. And I would have thought it was possible in a rough and ready way, at least, to devise a policy that does that. I mean, an awful lot of people lost an awful lot of equity uh, by holding stock in the wrong banks in the U.S. But, they, but they're, the so wrong, that they're, is the, a, they're the wrong people to look at. They're the people who rolled the dice, diversified. A lot of them made a killing along the way. Some got out in time. Some didn't. It's the creditors who worry – the people who are the fixed income folks – who worry about the solvency of the institution, not the equity people. The equity people don't want to be wiped out, obviously, but they yeah. get the upside. The creditors don't get the upside. If you take away the downside risk for them, the loss of the of bankruptcy and, and a haircut and potentially a 100 percent haircut, uh, we've got a very – seems to be unstable system. And you alluded to the fact – an unhealthy system. You alluded to the fact that in the old days, banks were partnerships and we've moved away from that. And I argue that's partly because we've made it. 
we've subsidized moving away from yeah, it. Yeah, but you 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 can you can keep the you surely can devise means of keeping the institutions functioning while having some of their bondholders take some fairly sizable haircuts and stop the entire financial system collapsing. Look, I'm not arguing uh, that moral hazard isn't a problem. Okay, uh, what I what I'm arguing is that when a financial crisis gets going, these things happen so fast. Uh, policymakers have to make decisions. I would just assume they erred on the easy side, but I recognize that, you know, I recognize the moral hazard issue, and I don't have a straight answer to it. I recall Charles Goodhart in England saying sometime in early 2009 that moral hazard is something we can worry about next year. For the moment, we have to keep the financial system functioning. And I think there's a lot to that. Yeah, it's the road to hell, too, if you're not careful, right? It's the well, road to hell. Uh, I take it. I mean, I've, I've heard the argument made, and I don't have a straight answer to it, that, uh, uh, you know, somebody had to be allowed to collapse, and it may as well have been Lehman Brothers. Okay? Well, I think you, uh, said, the, I think you said the right thing when you said there is a way to design a system that keeps some of the incentives. But for some reason, I think we know the reason, political reasons, Yeah, yeah. it doesn't seem to happen. I just uh, – I, I'm actually – I'm not so much disagreeing with you as the as the tendency we have as economists to advocate what we think is the best policy and neglecting the fact that sometimes the way we want it implemented and the way it actually gets implemented is not the same thing. So that's all. No, that's fair enough. That's a fair enough point. And I, you know, I, I won't pretend to have a straight answer to, answer to it because I, I, I don't. I really don't. Let's go to the second part of your uh, uh, response to the critics of uh, which – uh, of the Fed's behavior, which is to me incredibly interesting, especially given the history of, of monetary policy. Many monetarists, um, Alan Meltzer being one who's who I've interviewed on this program, who's who's said exactly what you were criticizing, have said that well, this this Fed policy of massive quantitative easing, the enormous buildup in high-powered money and the balance sheet of the Fed is going to cause huge inflation. That's going to be very disastrous. We know inflation is a terrible virus once it gets uh, starts to spread, and yet nothing has happened. Uh, they've been forced to argue, and I've been one of those people. I'm not an expert, but don't pretend to be one, but I still thought it was going to happen. We've been forced to argue, well, it's coming. It's just a matter of time. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I, I really don't understand particularly why Alan has paid so much attention to the behavior of the monetary base and so little to the behavior of the money supply during this episode. Uh, if we go back to uh, Friedman and Schwartz and the story of the early 1930s, I mean, between 1930 and 1933, the monetary base actually expanded. Okay, not very much. About 2 or 3% per annum was, was, was the average rate of expansion. The money supply collapsed by about a third and the economy collapsed. Now, that to me is devastatingly powerful evidence that what matters is the money supply and not the monetary base. This time around, we've had this huge expansion of the monetary base, and believe me, nobody's been looking more closely at the behavior of the money supply than I have to see when that was coming through and beginning to register an inflationary threat. But here we are, what, four or five years later, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, well, the, the people saying, you know, it's going to happen eventually. Yeah, maybe it is going to happen eventually. If I may just deviate for a moment, my, well, my first senior colleague in monetary economics, my first job was Hyman Minsky. And in 1963, he was explaining to me that, you know, financial crisis was just around the corner. And eventually, Hyman Minsky was right. But it was, uh, you know, 50 years later, uh, almost. 
Um, yeah, they'll be they'll be right eventually. But I, I think you have to. I, I've asked Alan, and I don't think I've really had a very good answer. Uh, why are you paying so much attention to the monetary base and why have you been paying so little attention to the behavior of the money supply this time around? And, well, you know, he tells me that the monetary base is the policy instrument and policy is on that measure is extremely expansionary and policies like that have always led to inflation eventually in the past. Well, maybe he'll be right eventually, but I see no sign of it yet. Yeah, uh, his... I. When I asked him, and this was quite, this was a few years ago, so it still hasn't happened yet. But when I asked him at the time, his argument was is that when the economy started to recover, the those reserves that the bank were holding at the Fed, the banks were holding at the Fed, would start to go out into the economy, and there would be terrible pressure on the Fed to let that happen uh, at at high levels because the the economy would be recovering. It would be very difficult to tighten at a time when the economy is finally starting to recover. It hasn't quite worked that way. The recovery has been so mediocre. Uh, there hasn't been this sudden exhilarating uh, whoosh of <laughs> money and no, confidence. I mean, there hasn't. You know, these are exactly the worries that the Fed had uh, in 1937 when it doubled reserve requirements. Uh, there were lots of free reserves building up in the system. And the Fed was very nervous that it was going to lose control of the money supply as the, you know, there was an expansion going on. Uh, they doubled reserve requirements. And what happened was that the banks that were subject to those reserve requirements immediately built up the stock of reserves again. Um, that contributed to a downturn in, in the money supply. And that downturn in the money supply contributed to the recession of 1937-38. So I think there have been precedents for this kind of behavior, you know, in the past. And I, I think uh, that there are, really, you know, I'm, I'm glad the Fed hasn't followed Alan's advice this time around. Uh, and I'm frankly a little bit nervous even now about the, you know, the, the sort of rumbling about uh, uh, beginning to phase out QE3. I hope they don't do it prematurely because we've been there before in the late 1930s. Oh. What about John Taylor's arguments when he's critical of – he's been very critical of Bernanke. He's very very critical of, uh, of Greenspan in the, uh, in the run-up to the crisis, although I, that was ex post criticism. He was in the administration at the time of, the, of those decisions uh, and maybe was not so um, eager or comfortable being critical at the time. But certainly ex post, he's been very critical of Greenspan and Bernanke. Uh, what do you think of, of those criticisms and, and of the idea of a, of a monetary rule that would be interest rate based? Well, I mean, uh, two things. Uh, first of all, I mean, I was critical of the Fed um, in those years as well. I thought the Fed should have raised interest rates a little bit faster in 2005, 2006. We did have an upward blip of interest rates here in Canada, uh, which was separate from anything that happened in the States. And I think that just, just put a damper on, on, uh, on the economy in the nick of time. And I wish the Fed had done that. And I did actually say so at the time. Um, not that anyone would take any notice, but, uh, so I think there's something that John Taylor, to John Taylor's argument there. Um, it, it boiled down to whether in the States you took the indicator of inflation as being the behavior, you know, of the consumer price index, or you looked at something more esoteric like the core personal expenditure deflator. And, uh, 
the Fed were looking at the core deflator and that, of course, takes, because it's a core index, it takes out the behavior of food and energy prices and it, it missed a fairly significant uptick in inflation, in fact, uh, as a result. So I think there's something to John Taylor's argument about the, the Fed not having been uh, careful enough in the run-up to this crisis. But that having been said, um, I still think you've got to look at something more deep going on in asset markets to explain the severity of the downturn. So you think it's much more than just a monetary phenomenon? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, on this is, I, I never thought I'd, I would live to say this, but on, on, this, on this particular instance, I'm inclined to line up with the Austrians. I think they really had a point, have a point about this, about this issue, about asset market distortions after long periods of monetary stability. Well, this again puts you in a small group of, of economists who've learned something from the crisis. I find it remarkable how many people have managed to keep their um, their theological views unchanged by the this experience. Well, you must remember that I'm retired, so I don't have to worry <laughs> about pleasing journal editors anymore. Yeah, and, and yeah. Well, no comment. What would be your view on uh, going forward? Would be the ideal monetary policy? Should we be doing something like the Taylor rule? Do you think anything positive about Scott Sumner's approach and that of others who argue for nominal GDP targeting? Milton at one point, I don't know, he changed sometimes, but he argued for a steady growth rate in the, in the rate of money. Where do, you, where do you think we are right now? Well, let me, let me back up. The first uh, let, let's, let, let's think about a state of affairs in which we are, we are out of the aftermath of, uh, of, of, of the, the, uh, the recession. Uh, so we're two or three years more down the path. Um, I still am I'm pretty happy with the inflation rate as the target of policy. Uh, you know, I base this a lot on Canadian experience. We've been targeting the inflation rate since 1991, uh, we've done it pretty successfully. Uh, we didn't have uh, a big asset market crisis here. We we had not had a recession, in fact, until uh, until 2008, since 1991. So inflation targeting worked pretty well for us. And it worked, I think, because it was a very explicit policy target agreed between the government and the Bank of Canada. It wasn't uh, an informal thing as it was in the Fed. Uh, it was discussed continually, and as you know, as time passed, the targets were hit, and it gained in, gained in credibility. So I would see no reason to go from that to a nominal GDP target. I don't like nominal GDP as a target for policy, for the simple reason is it's that's a variable that's measured with a lag, and it's subject to a lot of revision. And I don't see how you can run forward-looking monetary policy targeting the behavior of a variable that you don't get a good reading on for 18 months after it's happened, okay? With the you know, inflation targeting based on a consumer price index, you get timely data and it's not subject to revision. The indices are not perfect, but, but they're well understood by policymakers and the general public understands them as well. Uh, you know, if I, if I tell my wife the Bank of Canada is targeting nominal GDP, she'll just look at me and wonder what on earth I'm talking about. If I tell her they're targeting the, the rate at which the cost of living goes up, she understands that. And knowing that there is that target out there affects the behavior of ordinary ordinary consumers and producers, not just financial markets. Yeah, I think that's so very I'm, important. I, yeah, so I'm a big fan of 
first of all that the 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 target of policy should be, should should stay the inflation rate now in the 90s uh, we developed this uh kind of policy model that John Taylor made huge contributions to in which he used the central bank used its control of the overnight rate the federal funds rate in 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 the US context um to target the inflation rate and so long as the economy was running along fairly smoothly that kind of model worked i think we got the great moderation as it was called out of that kind of policy and i don't think you can take that achievement away from people like John Taylor But the trouble with that policy regime if you think of it as a complete uh regime in and of itself is that it's for fair weather. It it's a policy that works so long as the economy is running smoothly and the shocks that come along are fairly small. But it's really bad for the kind of stormy weather that we've had in the in the last 3 or 4 years. Uh the zero lower bound problem for interest rates is a big manifestation for that in that particular literature. These guys didn't really know what to do about it and now they start talking about unconventional policies. So I think there is a role for um a, a secondary policy regime as well if you like that goes back to Friedman and uh, doesn't have a rigid target for the rate of growth of the money supply but monitors monitors the rates of growth of the monetary aggregates and so long as it's not telling you anything different from your conventional analysis well you just get on with it but when when it does occasionally start giving you different information you go behind the numbers and ask why and maybe modify your policy stance if the monetary aggregates are telling you uh, giving you some extra information that isn't there in the interest rate based model this is messy and it's eclectic but i don't think we can do much better in the current circumstances quite honestly Now you mentioned uh the Canadian experience. Uh my impression is not only did you not have a recession between 91 and 2008 but that your 2008 experience was not nearly as drastic as the American one. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. And it's it was, also uh, Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say um you know, we did we did not have a big asset market crisis in Canada. We largely imported that recession uh from the rest of the world. And isn't it also true that in the Great Depression uh the Canadian economy did did better than the than than the average economy? I don't have those numbers right in front of me but the Canadian economy didn't do very well in the 1930s I know that. What is true is that there weren't any bank failures in Canada uh, during the Great Depression but we had all the agricultural problems and we had all the backwash from collapsing export markets and things like that as well so that's not an experience I would want to wonder wonder repeat no but the bank failure part of it it's rather you'd think Americans <laughs> would would look and say hey here's an economy rather close next to us uh they treat their banks differently than we treat our banks their banking system seems dramatically more stable stability is a good thing uh we don't seem to um to copy you guys seems well, like well you, you we've got a you know we've got five big banks and a few more smaller ones that's what I we have so. our five are just bigger than yours well you also <laughs> finally you're finally catching up with us okay Uh these guys have got a long tradition of uh, nationwide branching. Uh they are quite tightly regulated. Uh I don't know what more to say. Um it, in part Canada escaped this time around because we got a bit lucky, okay? We did have a problem in the commercial paper market in 
But our mortgage market was much more controlled and regulated uh, than the U.S. mortgage market. And in fact, the government was in the process of deregulating the mortgage market um, in the run-up to the Great, uh, the, the great Recession. Uh, it's just that the deregulation hadn't got far enough to do, to do serious damage. And they spent the last two or three years uh, re-regulating the mortgage market and putting things back where they were in about 2004. So I think we got a bit lucky. Uh, we also, I think, had some banks with good managers who I remember hearing about the Ninja Mortgage from a senior economist in one of our big commercial banks, again, you know, before the crisis. And he explained to me what a Ninja Mortgage was. And I said, something like, well, I hope you're not going to buy any of those. And he said, you bet not. Well, <laughs> lots of other... Um, Lots of other financial institutions south of the border did, but by and large, our banks stayed out of that market. So combination of good luck, good management. Uh, and I'm not sure that you can, uh, you know, you, Canadian banking's got a, got a two or 300 year history. I don't think you can export uh, 200 years of the history of institutional development just like that. Uh, we didn't have Andrew Jackson as president, right? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, that's true. But I, I do see it as a, as a public choice problem more than a, you know, paying attention problem. I think uh, if your realtors and home builders were as powerful as ours, maybe you'd have the government subsidizing home ownership as perilously as we have. And I think that's a huge part of the problem. Well, our government, our government does subsidize home ownership, of course, through a mortgage insurance program. And the mortgage insurance program was pretty tightly regulated, and they began they began to deregulate it. I think if the U.S. had taken another 18 months to turn down, uh, we might have been following uh, with a big collapse in the mortgage market. But it just hadn't got going. the The problems hadn't hadn't developed far enough. Let's. Uh, I'm sorry. No, let's cl let's close and talk about Keynes. Uh, yeah. Okay. When you were when you were we have a few minutes left. When you were in graduate school. Uh, Keynes was on the on the rise. Was the was the dominant Keynesianism was the dominant view, and you played a role as the role you played with with that book, the Monetary History of the United States. You were a part of that counter revolution that Friedman and Schwartz led, along with others. You mentioned Philip Kagan, of course. There were many many others. In a way, it started back with Irving Fisher, who who was opposing Keynes before Keynes came along. Uh, but but there became during your the beginnings of your professional career. A different view of the of the macroeconomy of the business cycle, and um, monetarism became much more important, which was so dormant and so uh, nobody paid any attention to it uh, five to ten years before that. And we're talking about the talking about the the, the late thirties, forties, and fifties. Yeah. So starting in the sixties with Friedman's work, tip, he was certainly the at the vanguard of it. Um, in the late fifties, and then the sixties and seventies, Friedman launched with the help of others. A counter revolution. Uh, what do you? What has happened since then? Uh, it's a rather remarkable, to me, seeming resurgence of of the Keynesian viewpoint. What are your reflections on that? And what do you think has happened? Well, I mean, first of all, just to go back to my own intellectual origins, it's very important to remember I did the history of economic thought both as an undergraduate and as a graduate student. So I had, for example, Lionel Robbins, who insisted that I read Henry Thornton's paper credit, and I'd read Badgett's Lombard Street. Um, I had read some of the literature of the 1920s as, a, as, a, as an undergraduate and a graduate student. So I wasn't ever uh, 
uh, in a position to be persuaded that everybody had been talking nonsense before Keynes came along, okay? <laughs> Maybe I had an unusual education. He, was, he, wasn't, the, he wasn't the first macroeconomist. No, but I also read the tract on monetary reform, you know, which Milton said was his favorite book by Keynes. That's the quantity theory book yeah. uh, that deals with the post-First World War monetary problems in a, in a, in a very monetarist framework, by the way. So, uh, I, you know, I, I knew that Keynes was one of these agile minds, and I don't know where he might have ended up. I know that his book, How to Pay for the War, um, was a very, very was again very much in a monetarist tradition. Uh, he switched from his analysis of the world as always in depression uh, to you know flexible mind. Now he said we have to worry again about the economics of scarcity and how to allocate resources in order to finance the war effort. And actually, Keynes's work on that was one of the roots of Milton Friedman's monetary economics. Uh, Friedman himself didn't know that. Friedman, when he was a young man, uh, became aware of the 1941 uh, British budget and its analysis of the inflationary gap and how to deal with that. And he didn't realize that was Keynes's budget. Uh, but he picked up that analysis and brought it into American debate, you know, through his articles on the inflationary gap and things like that. Okay, I've sort of made a big a big detour from the second part of your but question. Fascinating. Keep um, going. <laughs> I I think I think what's happened, you know, what happened in the interim is that the the monetarist counter revolution never got really brought to fruition. What happened was that Bob Lucas and Co came in with rational expectations modeling. Uh, this was really a wonderful source of research topics for graduate students, and the whole profession went running with it and began to forget the uh, the kind of institutionally based empiricism that went along with 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 Friedman and Schwartz, in particular. You know, it's a, it's remarkable that the most uh, influential work of the monetarist counter revolution wasn't a work of economic theory. It wasn't high powered econometrics. It was a work of narrative economic history that dealt with the evolution of institutions and their interaction with, with economic experience. Well, all that went out of the board with this fancy rational expectations modeling, which, which, you know, which had its benefits, but the monetarism faded into the background. Now, by the time we got down to five or six years ago, we had a, a, a framework called dynamic stochastic general equilibrium analysis, which is the basis of all those John Taylor style policy models that central banks use, which literally was not capable of encompassing financial crises within its intellectual framework. Uh, Bob Lucas, you know, himself said this in, in 2003. Well, you know, we've got some really good models, but there's a residual of re residue of issues, was his phrase, they can't deal with, like the Great Depression and financial crises. Well, we've had to deal with those things. And uh, some uh, people like Paul Krugman, who were unreconstructed Keynesians, noticed there was time for a rematch, right, between their very old-fashioned brand of macroeconomics and another old-fashioned brand of macroeconomics called monetarism, and they've been leading that debate. And I'm not quite sure where the, the up-to-date mathematical guys are at the moment. I think they're desperately trying to integrate financial markets into those models uh, and catch up. So the whole state of macroeconomics at the moment is very, very fluid indeed. You're very honest about it. I think uh, again. I think a lot of people I've read say, uh, "Oh, yeah, this fits." I don't. Know, I don't have. I don't have to change anything. Um, some of those folks have Nobel prizes. I find that. I find that 
Maybe not so surprising. Well, I, I, what, you know, what I really find depressing is the way some of these guys, you must have heard the phrase that they're introducing financial frictions into the models. And this seems to me to be just bizarre. Just, just listen to what they're saying. We have a model of a smoothly functioning economy which we thought was adequate, and it turns out not to be quite adequate. Oh, there's a financial market, and that introduces frictions into the working of the economy. Well, that's bizarre, right? You know, what's the financial and monetary system for? It's to overcome the frictions that are inherent in economic life. That yeah. actually, it's there to make a market economy possible in the first place. So these guys, I think, have still got things upside down, which doesn't mean they aren't going to produce models that might be useful. I've been surprised often enough in that respect. My guest today has been David Laidler. David, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Yeah, you're most welcome. I've enjoyed it very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.